Thank you for listening to the Calvary Monterey podcast. Please visit calvary.com to learn more about our church. And visit nateholdridge.com for additional Bible teaching from our lead pastor, Nate Holdridge. Teaching today is our lead pastor, Nate Holdridge. I wanted to start off by reading to you from Genesis chapter 1. It's the sixth day of creation. And on that sixth day, God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. What I want you to focus in on from that little paragraph that I read from the first chapter of the Bible is the fact that God created us as human beings to have dominion. Now the question is, what does it mean that God made us to have dominion? Well, what you need to do is go back to Genesis 1 itself because God had dominion in that chapter. Everything that he wished came to be. When he spoke light into existence, light was. He divided the sky from the uh, lower atmosphere. He divided the land from the ocean. He divided the species. He had dominion. Everything that he wanted to have come to pass came to pass. And of course, we would not have dominion just like God in the sense that we can't create something out of Nothing, but we could have dominion in the sense that we rule over the earth. We subdue the natural matter that God has created. That in self-control, we exist to love and to serve the world in which we live. But of course, we know the story in Genesis. We lost our dominion. When Adam and Eve entered into sin, chaos erupted on planet earth. And because of sin, Humanity's new way of living is this, not dominion, but under dominion. When we're born today, we are born following the passions of our bodies, following the course of this world, and following the prince of the power of the air, the devil himself. And unless Jesus intervenes in a human life, we only become more entrenched in that following of these other things as time goes on in our lives. But Jesus has come, offering a way of escape, offering, if you will, a way for us to come back into the dominion that we lost through sin. We're gonna talk about that this morning. But the backdrop of this passage is that in John's day, some people were confused. They misunderstood who Jesus was. And in our last study in 1 John, John straightened out their erroneous views about Jesus. They were saying that he was not God the Son, and John came to correct such thinking. But they also misunderstood sin. Some of them thought that sin was no big deal, something they could habitually engage in while claiming that they belonged to Christ. And John loathed this idea. He wanted us to know we as Christians are to have dominion over such activity in our lives. And so in this passage, he's gonna show us three things. 
He's going to show us, number one, who we are, that we're God's children. He's going to show us, secondly, who we'll become, that we will one day become like Jesus. And he's going to remind us who we aren't, that we aren't with the devil and on his team. And each section, dense with content, is going to urge us to a holy life, a life of right living, a life where we practice righteousness, a restored version of the dominion that we lost all the way back in the book of Genesis. This passage, and many others like it in the New Testament, declares to us, announces to us, heralds to us, that we can get the dominion back through belief and a walk with Jesus Christ. So let's, number one, look at the first section of this passage. Number one, who we are, God's sons and daughters. Who, who are we? We are God's sons and daughters. Let's read verse 28 and 29 together, together again. He said, and now little children abide in him, abide in Jesus, so that when he appears, when Jesus appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he's righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. Now, one word that we get repeated that we've looked at a few times in the last couple of weeks is this word abide. Did you see it there in verse 28? Now, little children, abide in him. I had Pastor Joshua teach us a few weeks ago out of John chapter 15, which is the section where Jesus said, abide in me and I in you as the, as the branches abide in the vine. If you abide in me, you will bear much fruit. And so he taught us there in that section the importance of an ongoing, personal, obedient relationship to Jesus. And that if we live that way, if we enjoy Jesus, we're tapping into his resources, we're walking with Jesus, what will happen as we abide with him? We will bear much fruit. But a couple of weeks ago, John used the word abide in a different way from the John 15 way that Jesus used it. A couple of weeks ago, we saw John say that though there were people who came along saying that Jesus had not come in the flesh, we should confess he did come in the flesh, that he is the son of God and God the son and that we should abide in that belief. So, in John's mind, informed by Jesus, and as he expressed it here in these passages, abiding has a couple of nuanced terms attached to it. First of all, we're to abide in the truth. We're to believe the truth about Jesus. We're to believe the gospel. We're not to depart from it. We're to stay in it. And after abiding in the truth, we are then, notice verse 29, born of Jesus, born of him, born of God. We're given a new nature in Christ. And finally, after that, we then continue with Jesus. We abide with Jesus in a daily relationship with him. I put it in a brief, succinct uh, sentence for you that I'll show you on the screen. It goes like this. Belief and new birth, then righteous living. This is really what John is focusing on in this little section of Scripture. And it's this righteous living that John seeks to emphasize when he says in verse 28, look at it again with me, so that when Jesus appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. That word coming is the Greek word parousia. It's the word that they would use in that era to describe the coming of a king or the coming of an emperor. 
Now, John hadn't yet written the book of Revelation at the point that he wrote 1 John, but eventually he'd receive the book of Revelation from God. And in it, he would have a vision in Revelation 19 of the moment in the future when Jesus returns, riding on a horse with his armies and on his thigh a name written, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. But it's as if John already has that image in his mind. He's saying Jesus is going to come. Jesus is coming back. And what he's announcing is, with a firm belief that Jesus will return, we should live lives of obedience to him, which will lead to confidence rather than shame at his coming. Now, there are many verses in the Bible that it's not hard to imagine someone who's legalistic beating up other Christians with. And this is one of those concepts. The idea that the day is coming where Jesus will come and we don't want to be ashamed of our lives, but we want to have confidence when he returns. In fact, some of you in reading those verses, you thought that doesn't sound like good news at all. That the day is coming where he's going to return and I'm going to have to report. Maybe for some of you, you feel like it's a report card time. You know, like the grades have come in, your final has been completed, you can't go back and get extra credit or make up any assignments that you forgot to do, and now Jesus comes with his eternal grade on your life, and you're going to walk around with that report card for all of eternity, having to show all your friends, yeah, I got a D minus, but at least I'm in, you know, kind of thing. (laughs) Some of us think this is going to be a terrible event. Because we know that sins of omission and sins of commission litter our lives. We all wish we'd done more for Jesus. I have never had a day in my life where at the end of it I have thought, now this is the day that I hope Jesus comes back because of how great I did today. (laughs) No, if this is the way we're seeing what John says, we've missed the point of John's appeal. The thing John says will give us confidence, you have to look at it more closely. He said, the thing that gives you confidence on the day your king returns is a history of abiding in him. To abide is part obedience, like I said, but it's also part holding fast to the truth of the gospel, clinging to it, the original confession, and enjoying an ongoing relationship with Christ. You see, if Jesus is only a returning king or a conquering general, then it would make sense that all he's looking for is obedience or allegiance. He is looking for that, but he's more than just those things. He's also our brother. He's our savior. He's the champion of our souls. He's the one who brings us back to glory. And he's the gracious husband of the church who laid down his life for his people. His return marks a major and massive step in his goal of bringing his people back to glory. He's gracious, he's merciful. He delights when we abide in him and he is pleased to have us continue to believe his work on the cross and enjoy a personal relationship with him. He looks at our lives and yes, he wants allegiance, but he also wants our walk with him, our enjoyment of him, our relationship with him, our desperation for him. And he is well pleased when we never let go of that gospel confession, when we always believe that he died for our sins and that we are trusting him for our righteousness and forgiveness. 
But all that said, John does make it clear that some will shrink from him in shame at his coming. This shame might come because they denied who Jesus is. This shame might come because they decided not to personally engage with him, pray, spend time in his presence. Or it might come because of some form of ongoing rebellion or disobedience in their lives. Whatever the levels of shame might be, it's shame nonetheless. But John doesn't seem worried about it for God's true children. Notice what he says in verse 29. He thinks that the practice of righteousness will flow from people who are born of God. You see, God is righteous, and believers are in his family. He put us in his family. And so John expects the new birth will lead to the practice of right living. For John, righteous conduct is not a condition for rebirth, but a consequence of our rebirth, our new birth. Now, you all know this, but we receive attributes from our parents. I mean, it's just the way things work. You receive things in your physical being, but also you're just emotional being, just who you are. I'm sure many of you have had the experience of saying, I'm never gonna sound like my father, and then you've opened up your mouth and you said, yeah, I sound just like my dad right now, right in this moment. Uh, for example, I know that I sound a lot like my dad. You know, if you listen to my dad speak, we have identical voices. He's not a tenor. He gave me the bass that I got in my voice and all of that. We sound just like each other. People have actually told me over time, because my dad's a Bible teacher, a pastor, he started this church, there are many people who have told me, I can close my eyes and listen to you teach, and it's like I'm listening to Pastor Bill. That's my dad, he's Pastor Bill. And just as we pass our genetics on from one generation to another, God passes his nature on to his children. So John isn't surprised that God's kids would practice righteousness like their righteous Father in heaven. This was important in John's day because the false teachers seemed to be saying something like, we know God and we are converted and the proof of it is that we have special knowledge. John dispenses with the idea that there's special knowledge and he points straight to personal and practical obedience, an outworking of the reality that's happened within. But let's read verse one again to see what else John says about who we are as God's children. He says, see what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Now what's happening right here? What's happening is that John, as he thinks about the new birth, he just pauses for a second to celebrate the kind of love that the Father has given to us in verse one. He was just simply amazed that we would be called children of God. It wasn't a title that John took for granted. In fact, it's like he stopped and paused and said, and so we are today that's what's happened to us we are children of god what what's happening here what you have is the apostle john a man who was more mature in christ than anyone on the earth at that time who had walked with jesus for decades who had known jesus from his teenage years to at this point probably being in his 80s he is moved in a moment 
as he considers the love of God. He's overwhelmed by God's love. And this is the way it so often is for us. I get to see this a lot of times as a pastor because people will want to talk to me about different things that God is teaching them. And over the years, I've had so many experiences where someone will come up to me and tell me, Pastor Nate, God is teaching me so much right now. He's showing me so many things. And my mind begins to race. I start wondering, like, I wonder what God has shown them. I wonder what God has taught them. Maybe they've memorized the book of Romans. You know, maybe they've discovered who wrote the book of Hebrews. Maybe they think they know who the Antichrist is or something like that. I mean, I've heard some crazy stuff over the years too, but so often it's fascinating how someone will then say, what I'm learning is how much God loves me. And sometimes it comes out of the mouth of someone who I know has known Jesus for 30 years. And there they are saying, I'm learning how much God loves me. Why is that a common occurrence? Why is it that a pastor could make one of his points of every single sermon till the day that he dies, God loves you, and people would be stoked to hear that point over and over and over again? I think it's because that basic truth is also the biggest truth, and it's the best truth, but it's the one that Satan works so hard to unravel in our minds week after week in our lives. He doesn't want us to know how much God loves us, how much God cares for us. And the part of God's love that John was amazed at was that we should be called children of God. He says, you gotta see this love. He says, it's, it's already happened. That's why in verse one, he says, God has given, past tense, this love to us already. He's loved us so much that he's made us his children. And so we are right now. If you're covered by the blood of Jesus, you are God's child. Look, we have to understand this about God, that he is our loving father and that we are his sons and his daughters, that he loves and that he cares for us. Sometimes I meet people as well who, when they tell me the things that God is speaking to them, for years I'll hear them sharing with me things that God is showing them, and the only thing that ever comes out of their mouth are words of conviction. You know, I was convicted about this today, Nate, or I was convicted about that today, Nate, or this sermon convicted me of this or convicted me of that. And don't get me wrong, I believe that the Holy Spirit, one of his roles is to convict his people. The Bible says in Romans 8, verse 1, that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, but condemnation is vague. It's nebulous. You walk around with a feeling that you don't matter in the eyes of God, but conviction is specific. It's God saying, I love you, you're my child, I care for you, and I want to help you with this shortcoming, with this attribute. I want to grow you in an area of weakness. I believe that the Holy Spirit wants to convict his people. But listen to me right now. If all you ever hear when you read the Bible or you listen to sermons, if all you ever hear, if all your ears do in processing what you're receiving or what you're reading is conviction, you likely haven't heard everything that your Father in heaven is trying to say to you. He will at times bring conviction into your life, but he also wants to show you and tell you over and over again, how much he cares for you, how much he loves you, how much he simply delights in you that you are his child. Sometimes people ask the question, why did God create? Why did God create? He had no need. He did not need. It seems that a major reason that God created is because he wanted us 
to be able to experience his love. He didn't need to experience our love. He was perfect and complete by himself, but he wanted us to experience his love being poured out upon us. So who are we? We are the loved children of God, the sons and daughters of the Lord. Now notice just that that little phrase at the end of verse one, before we move on to our next section, where John says that the world will not know Christians because they have not known God. The reason that John mentions that or, or the reason that's helpful is because for the believer, the approval of the world is something to be feared, not something to be desired. And it's helpful at times for a Christian to step back and say, are there parts of the world system that I'm totally compatible with, where the world system gets me and I get it, and in those areas, we should want to become more like the Lord and depart from the way of the world. But let's move on to our second part of the teaching or the second paragraph, really. Number two, who will become, will become, number two, like God's son, like God's son. Let's read verse two uh, together. It says, beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we shall know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. Look at that phrase there again. He says, when he appears, that's Jesus. We will be like Jesus because we shall see him as he is. I was hoping somebody would fall out of their chair when I read that line this morning. It's just a wild line that one day, we're gonna be like Jesus. It's astounding. Now this incredible fact, it follows John's logic really well. What he's saying is, God has birthed you. He's put his seed into you. You have a new nature. So it makes sense that one day, if we're God's children, we would be like God's son, the ultimate child of God, the ultimate son of God, God the son. And the whole Bible drives us toward this glorious hope. That's why I read to you from Genesis chapter one to start this teaching. Because we lost the dominion that God designed for us. Because like him, we were to be fruitful and multiply. We were to steward everything that he, that he made, but sin robbed us of that dominion. And rather than live self, in self-controlled service to the world, we began living in out-of-control self-worship. Sin kept us from everything God intended but what John is announcing is that one day we will become the very thing that God intended and more uh, when, we, when we meet the Lord as he is. Notice how Paul said it in Romans 8, verse 29. He said, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. What he says there is we will be conformed into Jesus' image. How will we be conformed into the image of Jesus? Okay, remember the Genesis passage? When God said we would have dominion and that we would be like him, made in his image, he did not mean that we would become divine, right? He did not mean that we could create something out of nothing. And in the same way, just as when we become like Jesus on that day in heaven, we're not going to be like Jesus in the sense that we become the savior of the world or that we become eternally pre-existent or anything like that. No, what it means is that his nature and character and goodness and holiness will be our 
practical experience in that moment. Another word for this is the word glory. When you believed in Jesus, you were instantaneously justified by Christ, but one day when you meet the Lord face to face, you will be instantaneously glorified with Christ. Paul said it like this in Colossians 3, verse 4. He said, when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. This is a glorious announcement, you guys, that the day is coming where all our shortcomings and frailties and weaknesses, everything we go through today that is not in the image of God, it will be gone tomorrow. They'll all be swallowed up by the life of Christ, the last Adam consuming the first. In another place, Paul said, just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. You know, we live in an age where a message that is often communicated to people is that uh, of the importance of self-acceptance. You know, that we shouldn't have a poor self-image, that we should like ourselves, we should learn to love ourselves, we should learn to accept ourselves. But I think as we hear that message, there are many of us where in the back of our minds, we know that there's a flaw in that line of thinking. Because no matter how hard we try to accept the weaknesses and the sins that beset us, we know that they are in a sense glaring flaws that we'd be better off without. But for this, the scripture gives us the gospel. The good news of God's grace and Christ's cross is that God accepts us by the blood of the Son and that we can have a high self-image because God places his value upon us. He declares us as worthy. And then scripture tells us in places like this one that one day all our imperfections will melt away in his glorious presence and will forever be like Jesus. I, for one, can't wait for this moment to occur. We'll still be ourselves, by the way. You'll recognize me, I'll recognize you. We'll have the personalities that God has given to us. But everything about us will be the glorified version of the self. I can't wait to see what the glorified Nate Holdridge is going to be like. You know, sometimes we think about the glorified bodies that we'll receive. And don't get me wrong, I'm looking forward to having a glorified body. And the older I get, the more I'm looking forward to that glorified body that the Lord will give to me. But I'm looking forward as well to the glorified mind the glorified spirit and soul and heart that the Lord will give to me. I can't wait to see what that person is like. As the years pass by, sometimes we get discouraged by the slowness of our progress in Christ. This last week, one of the places I taught, as I mentioned, was my alma mater, Calvary Chapel Bible College. And I can't remember this ever happening to me, because, and I've spoken there many, many times, but after I was done speaking, I had three or four students come up to me and say, I'm pretty sure you went to school here with my parents. <laughs> it's like, thank you, you know. <laughs> Time waits for no man, you know. And, and as the years pass by, sometimes what started out as hope and optimism give way to pessimism, and we become discouraged by the lack of growth in our lives. And we begin to lose our hope. But 
John is telling us, don't lose hope. One day, you'll be like Jesus. Now, what I want you to see here before I move on to the next verse is found at the end of verse two. He says, the reason we'll be like Jesus on that day is because we will see him as he is. Look, there's a sense in which we couldn't see Jesus unless he transformed us and glorified us in that moment, that, that these frail bodies could not handle a full vision of his majesty, okay? But there's another sense in because we've seen him, we're changed to be like him. And, and just listen to me right now. If seeing Jesus at that time leads to our glorification, then it seems also that the New Testament teaches that to see Jesus right now leads to our sanctification, where we become like him, not instantaneously, but by degrees. This is how Paul said it in 2 Corinthians 3.18. It's one of my favorite verses. I quote it all the time, so I'm always looking for new translations to quote it to you from, and this one comes from the Amplified Version. Paul says, And we all with unveiled face, continually seeing as in a mirror, the glory of the Lord. For them, mirrors were not a clear image, but, but a polished metal, so it would be a blurred vision. As seeing in a mirror the glory of the Lord, looking at Jesus, are progressively being transformed into his image from one degree of glory to even more glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. So the idea then is that if one day you will see Jesus and be made fully like him, then right now today, keep looking at Jesus. Keep spending time with Jesus so that you could be transformed in the here and now as well. Okay, what would this knowledge though, that one day you'll see him and be like him, what should it do to us? Well, let's read on in John's uh, passage, verse three and following. He says, and everyone who has this hope, the hope that they'll see Jesus, in him purifies himself as he is pure. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. All right, I'm going to look at the latter half of the paragraph first. There, John tells us a knowledge of our future glorification will not lead us to lawlessness. Glorification tomorrow does not lead to rebellion today. And John can't imagine a, a believer living in perpetual rebellion because he says in verse 5, Jesus appeared to take away sins, not to make them stronger, but to take them away. He said in verse five, in Jesus there is no sin, meaning his whole nature is void of it. And in verse six, he could not imagine how someone who interacts with Jesus continually could keep on sinning. He just can't imagine it. To him, it's impossible. What he thinks is if you've seen Jesus or if you've known Jesus, you will not keep on sinning. Now, the definition, though, that John uses for sin in this passage helps us understand what he's talking about. He calls it, notice, the practice of lawlessness. You see, John has already made it hyper clear in this letter 
in chapter one and in the early parts of chapter two that a Christian will sin from time to time. Uh, That when we sin, we're to go to the Lord and confess our sins and he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And in chapter two, verse one, we learned that when we sin, we have an advocate with the Father. Who's our advocate? Jesus Christ, the righteous. So he's already told us that as Christians, there will be times where we succumb to sin. What's he talking about here, though, when he says that someone will not keep on sinning? That's where the word lawlessness is helpful. It's a word that means more than a struggle with sin, but declaring that you care nothing for God and his sovereign laws, that they have no jurisdiction over you and over your life, that you are the one who creates the code by which you should live. I recently heard someone arguing about something that kind of made me think of this concept of lawlessness. I heard them arguing about a particular denomination of Christianity, and their argument was that this denomination should tolerate wildly varying doctrinal positions regarding human sexuality, that they should tolerate a, a, a lot of views that even contradict each other. Uh, Her thought was that God was the only one who could weigh in on how people should live their lives. And when she said that, she was overlooking the fact that this particular denomination was trying to look into God's word to figure out how God said human beings should live their lives. But her argument then continued and she said, live and let live, I say. So let me ask you, whose word was actually authoritative? God's? No, hers. She said, I say. She was living by the authority of her own word. Her own word had become her new scripture. And that's a form of the kind of lawlessness that John is talking about. The kind of message that the false teachers in John's day likely communicated. They were telling people, do you, whatever feels right, go for it. Put, you know, but they might as well have said, put on a yoke of slavery, suffer, and be miserable because everything that feels like freedom today actually leads to slavery tomorrow. And so John is very clear. Everyone, verse three, who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. In other words, if you're looking forward to being like Jesus forever, You'll want to be like Jesus today. That desire to be like Jesus forever, it will lead you to a pursuit of purity right now. You know, in the Old Testament, God said to his people, the people of Israel, over and over again, he said, be holy as I am holy. He wanted them to imitate him. They were his children. And when we dream of the forever holiness of Jesus and get a glimpse of it today through his word or through preaching or through prayer, we should begin longing for his holiness to be part of our lives right now. So what John's saying is that we should surrender ourselves on his altar and ask him to change us, to pursue a life of purity or holiness today. There Other versions will help us see this. Look at what the message says about it. All of us who look forward to his coming stay ready with the glistening purity of Jesus' life as a model for our own. Or Greek scholar Kenneth Wiest, he said, and everyone who has this hope continually set on him is constantly purifying himself 
just as that one is pure. You see, John's been telling us in these few short verses, what we are, we're God's children. What we will be, will be like Jesus forever. And now what we should be, pure like Jesus. You see, you guys, when, when someone who's not a Christian sins, they're sinning against the creator of the universe. But when we as believers persist in rebellion against the Lord, we're sinning against a loving father. They're sinning against the law, but we're sinning against God's love. So for us, there should be a passion for holiness, a passion for purity in our lives. We should crave it. We should desire it. Let me give you a few suggestions or some some spaces that we could pursue holiness or purity. We could pursue uh, the putting off or ridding ourselves of untrue speech. You see, too many people are liars these days, and many people don't know who to trust, but Christians have an opportunity to model the beautiful countercultural art of truth-telling. We can also pursue holiness by ridding ourselves of anger. Anger wants to enslave you, but we should not allow the devil to dismantle us with unrighteous anger. You could pursue holiness by ridding yourself of laziness. Put off thieving or stealing and put on honest work. There's a proverb, Proverbs 10, 26. It goes like this. Lazy people irritate their employers like vinegar to the teeth or smoke in the eyes. These are unpleasurable experiences. Vinegar in the teeth, smoke in the eyes. It's an irritation. That's what lazy people are like to their employer. And all the employers in the house today said amen because they felt it before in their lives. Christians, though, are to put off laziness and become hardworking people. We can pursue holiness by ridding ourselves of corrupting speech, speech that tears down other human beings rather than building them up and imparting grace. We should not grieve the Holy Spirit by shredding other people, but we should instead encourage people. We could pursue holiness by ridding ourselves of bitterness and wrath and slander. All of these things, when we engage in them, it's like drinking poison and expecting someone else to die. But all you're doing is hurting yourself. We should put these things off. And all of these exhortations, by the way, whether you liked them or didn't like them, whether you felt that they were too intrusive or invasive or strong or bold or not, it really doesn't matter because they were all taken in sequence from Ephesians chapter four. You see, as you read the Bible, God is gonna show you different things and point out different things where he's like, hey, here's an area where I wanna help grow your life. Stay in the word because his word will help you see what a pursuit of holiness looks like. All right, let's close by looking at the last handful of verses, looking at number three, who we aren't. We aren't with God's enemies. We aren't with God's enemies. Verse seven, he says, little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Apparently, the false teachers around during John's time were trying to deceive the church. Uh, They were telling them that righteous people could somehow 
practice unrighteousness, yet still be righteous. John didn't want his little children to be deceived that way, so he was clear. He said, whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. From the beginning of his fall, his rebellion against God, whenever that occurred, Satan has been sinning. It's what he's about. He's a sin machine. He's been messing things up from the beginning of time. But Jesus came to, verse 8, destroy the works of the devil. All the pain and the hurt and the deception and agony that that little punk has caused here on earth, Jesus is coming to destroy and has destroyed through his cross. Jesus will destroy death forever. And he's going to, he said, throw Satan into the lake of fire, which was prepared for Satan and his angels or demons, where they will be tormented forever. John's communicating something real straightforward here. He's just saying, look, if you know who you are, God's child, and if you know who you'll become, like Jesus, and you're pursuing a life of holiness, then you also need to know who you aren't. You aren't on the devil's team. You aren't with God's enemies. He came to destroy them. You should not be following along in their ways. That's why he recaps this whole section in verse 9 and 10 by saying it like this. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. These are some strong statements. John says things like, these are the ones who are the children of the devil. That's some strong stuff. He's saying, look, if you've been born of God, though you'll sin and succumb to temptation, you will not make a practice of sinning. God's seed abides in you. But there are people who they will follow their father, the devil himself. He calls them children of the devil. Those are strong words. Now, when John was young, there was an episode when he asked Jesus if he could, with others, call down fire to strike people that were outside of their camp. And Jesus rebuked him, and he grew out of that fire and brimstone mentality. And by the time he wrote this letter, you know what he was known as? The apostle of love. He's just like this loving man. Church history tells us that in his old age, he would get up in the pulpit, barely able to speak, and he would say, children love one another. But this man, filled and overflowing with love, says something very strong when he says, there are those who are children of the devil. The only thing that I can guess is that his desire was to speak the truth so that people could be rescued from that reality. I think his hope was that the truth would set people free. So he says, look, there's two things that will be found in the lives of God's children, the practice of righteousness and a love for our brothers and sisters in Christ Jesus. Now look, we all know people who named the name of Christ but then wandered off into rebellion against the Lord maybe believing things that are untrue about the Lord. And we're praying for them, and our prayer is, Lord, we hope and pray that the true them, if they really know you, would come shining forth. And the confidence John has is that that day will occur. 
We, of course, know that the Lord only knows who are his, but we want to pray and say, Lord, if they really are yours, help them to turn back to you. All right, so in recap, we've seen that our confession in Jesus has made us God's family. It's fundamentally changed us, and one day we will be like the Son of God, so we should want to be like him today through a pursuit of holiness in our lives today. And we should not give in to the world system because it's just following the ways of the devil and that's not the team that we're on. We are to live righteously and to love one another. All right, before we sing a song to close this time out, I'm gonna give you uh, seven applications of this. I know Pastor Matt only gave you three last week. It was a little weak. I'm gonna give you seven (laughs) applications. No, those were great last week. Number one, ask the Father to gently, lovingly show you areas you will be ashamed of at Christ's return. Again, with everything I said about the Father, he loves you, that's why I'm saying gently and lovingly, that's how he'll do it. But John is talking about the return of Christ and wanting to have confidence in that day, so ask the Father, Father, would you show me those things in my life that on that day, they won't matter and that I could deal with today so that there isn't that sense of shame at that point. Number two, while you're at it, praying, ask the Father to open your eyes to his love for you. I think we always need to be praying that. Open my eyes, help me to see. Paul said it this way, the length, width, depth, and height of the love of Christ which passes knowledge. We need to pray that. Number three, finally, ask the Father as you're praying to show you any areas you've gotten the sinful world system's approval. The lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, pride of life that we talked about a few weeks ago. Any part of your life that's like fitting in with that, ask the Father to show you any of those areas where the world system would approve of your life. Okay, number four, after praying those things, number four, say, I love myself less and Jesus loves me more. All right, I'm not, I'm not a person that's walked around ever saying like, I love myself, I love myself. It's, I've never been that kind of person. But like I said earlier, there is that teaching that you know, we need to learn to accept ourselves and things like that, and I don't think it's a terrible teaching. But I found in my own life at least that what means so much more is to know that Jesus loves me. And that when that is in my mind, it dictates the way I live in a much better way than when I just self-approve or self-affirm. Number five, allow God to, do we have number five? We do, there it is. Allow God, we didn't have it last service, that's why I was checking. Allow God to reprogram the way you feel about holiness. Some people think of holiness like it's a dirty word. They think the Pharisees were holy. They were not holy, they were super carnal. Holiness is a beautiful word. It's a beautiful way to live. It's a wonderful way to live life. It doesn't mean that you're not fun. Remember when I first became a Christian, I thought I will never be funny another day in my life. I just thought that was the case. I'll never make another human being laugh because now I'm a Christian. But (laughs) that's not what holiness means. Holiness is a beautiful way to live. It's like Jesus. Number six, consider sins of omission. We spend a lot of times thinking about sins that we could commit the things we do wrong, but we also need to think about sins that are sins of, of things where Jesus tells us to do them, but we don't do them. 
Not just things he says, don't do them and we do them, but things he says, do them and we don't. Like, go into all the world and make disciples. And we're like, well, maybe I'll do that. That's the sin of omission. You're omitting something Christ has told you to do. Number, uh, number seven, invest your time and your treasure in or on your team. If we know what family we're part of, we should invest in that family, whether it's time or treasure or the calendar or whatever, invest uh, in that family. And as always, all of those are online, and uh, you guys can, can uh, check those out or you could take a picture right now. Thank you for listening. If you would like more teachings and information about Calvary Monterey, please visit calvary.com. You can also find books, teachings through the Bible, and articles from our lead pastor at nateholdridge.com. Thanks again for tuning in. See you next week.